All right, everyone, I'm just going to go ahead and get started. It's so nice to see you all, some new faces and some old faces. Um, so my name is CJ Green. I'm on staff with Mockingbird. Um, I've been working with Mockingbird for almost uh, five years now. I started as an intern while I was in my last year of college at UVA, um, and I was studying English there. Um, currently, I'm the managing editor of the Mockingbird website, which sounds really cool, but basically just means I'm like adding Oxford commas and deleting double spaces day to day. Um, so, but today, yeah, I wanted to read with you a story, um, and it's just about a woman who falls asleep in church, ultimately. And I really, I wanted to do this session because I'm interested in the two main components of that. I, I really like short fiction, um, and I'm also really good at falling asleep in church. I have, I have a history of that. Um, there's a passage somewhere in the Bible that says, awaken sleepers. I think it's one of the prophets. And one time when I was a, a kid in church, um, a priest shouted that from the pulpit. And my brother and I were fast asleep in the back row. And we thought, we were pretty sure he was talking to us. And perhaps in a way he was. But um, So yeah, the story we're going to read is about signs, um, getting signs from God. Um, when I was 18, I joined a um, very charismatic Pentecostal college ministry and spent um, upwards of four years pretty intensively searching for signs from God. Um, I had dreams that I believe were significant and visions and I really, I desperately wanted to speak in tongues. Um, I'm not sure, is everybody familiar with speaking in tongues, that concept? I wasn't until I went to college and heard people talking about it and it's this like experience where you're sort of given this God language and you begin speaking words that maybe you don't even fully comprehend or understand and um, it's, it's heralded as a gift in certain denominations and so when I was um, yeah in college I really wanted to do that I wanted to cultivate that and um, the first significant interaction that I ever had with my wife was actually at a seminar um, where we were both um, trying to learn to speak in tongues and so I think that there maybe is some sort of divine um, divine providence there, um, but I've never, never been able to do it myself, so I'm not, I'm not ruling it out if anybody can teach me. Um, so yeah, I was born and raised in Northern Virginia, live now in Charlottesville where I work for Mockingbird, and I'm lucky enough to just find New Yorker magazines sort of laying, like lying about, um, either in the church office where I work or um, just in public spaces. So um, yeah, I love picking up an issue and flipping to the fiction. Um, that's how I discovered the story that you guys all have. Um, it's by a man named John Lara. Um And I was just, this is kind of a, a really special time, actually. I'm glad to sh have this opportunity to share it with you guys, because I was just informed that this, this gentleman, this author, um, he died on Monday. Um, he, was, he was in his mid-80s, and I think it was Parkinson's related, but there was an obituary in the New York Times this morning, pretty sure about um, about that, so it's kind of cool that we get to um, kind of gather together and honor his his life and work. Um, so some background about him: he was born in 1934, and at age 19 he entered the Society of Jesus, which is an order of Roman Catholic priests. And in 1956 he began working towards his ordination. Um, during his 17 years as a priest, he studied English. He did some cool things in addition to pastoral care. Um, he studied English at Harvard and also served as a staff editor for the Atlantic Monthly, which is pretty neat. Um, 
Given some of the content of his later stories, and also, um, this is a fun fact, but he flunked canon law as a young theology student. Um, so you might fairly guess that some level of burnout maybe caused him to leave the priesthood, which he did in 1971. Not totally sure, that's just speculation, but also that year he married his wife, um, Joan, to whom he um, is still, was still married um, when he died on Monday. Um, in his stories, though, he, despite having left the priesthood, he doesn't disparage faith by any means. Um, to the contrary, in my opinion, I feel like he really unveils it. Um, in a really profound way and points time and again to a God who not only exists but also loves in spite of these characters' flaws and failings. Um, many of Leroux's stories, as in his first collection, Comedians, take on a surrealist quality which creates a sort of warped uh, veneer through which we can readers can begin to see sort of the movements of, of grace and sort of the supernatural elements of that. Um, but about, about that same collection, Comedians, a reviewer once said that um, LaRose's stories are comedies, and this is a quote, comedies with no tidy resolutions and nothing to make it all cohere except a thin, thin line of something vague and unnameable, which LaRose would want his readers to understand as grace. Um, so that's pretty, pretty straightforward, really, um, and I think you will be able to, to understand that as we dig into this story today. In the 90s, he wrote a book called The Shrine at Altamira, um, which John LaRue called one of his only perfect books or like nearly perfect books. Um, I read it a couple months ago, and it's a very heavy novel. Um, it has a lot of like Job-like themes, but... Um, towards, towards the end, one of the characters suggests that God sanctifies us. He makes us saints in his own way. Thanks, Mark. Um, God sanctifies us and makes us saints in his own way. Not in our way. It never looks like sanctity to us. It looks like madness or failure or even sin. And so obviously to me that evokes the sort of cross-defined um, understanding of sanctity, that we're made holy by the cross, by what appears to all the world to be the precise opposite of holiness, um, and also that sanctification is God's work. The, the way that we're made good is, is by God's doing and not, not by our own, and that we may not even be able to control or comprehend the ways that God is doing that in our lives. Um, so yeah, in this story, um, that's kind of the general arc. It's a little bit funnier, I think, and a bit lighter than, say, the Shrine at Altamira, but um, it is a story about measurement and comparison and how God um, tends to sort of defy those measures. So um, yeah, I want to go ahead and read it together. Um, can I just have like a show of hands for people who might be interested in, in reading? Do we have any like good read, like readers? Because I feel like I might bore myself. Um, if I okay, so we have at least one. Yeah, okay, that's great. So I think we'll just do a little popcorn, and you can go ahead and read um, as much or as little as you like. Um, and we have this nifty recording device because we are trying to keep this for um, posterity's sake. So if you just pass it around, um, we will do most. We'll, we'll do probably half of the story. The part that we're not going to read is highlighted. So when you get to that highlighted bit, we'll just skip it and. At some point when you have more time, you should definitely read the whole thing, but um, for time's sake. Um, would anybody like to start us off? Um, and then, yeah, like I said, just as much or as little as you like. Thank you, Maddie. A Sign by John LaRoe. Anne Clark is a modern woman. 
1950, smack in the middle of the century, and she knows that the Second Great War is over and women were the real winners. Everywhere, women are taking charge of their lives, but Annie is Catholic, so she has to go slow. Today, for instance, she's being extra patient with this young waitress, Patsy P., who is stout and clumsy and maybe new to the job. Annie is waiting for dessert, apple pie with cheese, and she figures they must be baking the pie fresh because it's taking forever. Finally, the girl brings the pie and shoves it in front of Annie and heads off without a word. Annie looks at the speck of cheese on her plate and immediately says, Miss, but the girl keeps going. So Annie raises her napkin in the air and says loudly, Miss. Somebody turns to look at Annie. Everybody turns to look at Annie except the waitress. She's gone. After several minutes, she comes back from wherever she's been hiding. Miss, Annie says, the voice of endurance. What is this, please? It's what you ordered. No, I ordered apple pie with cheese. And that's what you got, the girl said, staring beyond Annie at a future without people like this. <laughs> Annie is about to say, bring me a slice of cheese big enough for me to see, when suddenly she is struck by how much the girl resembles her as she was at 20. Patsy P. is unattractive with bad skin and she is running to fat already. So nobody notices her now and nobody ever will except to take advantage of her. It was that way for Annie too. In her teens, she used to joke that she was Cinderella, but without the fairy godmother. She's been taken advantage of always, even in the covenant. Faced now with Patsy P. in all her unloveliness, Annie is moved nearly to tears at her own life. She manages nonetheless to ask for and get a larger piece of cheese. Annie eats her dessert slowly, meditating. Her kids. This morning she left for 7.30 mass while they were still quarreling over the Wheaties, so God only knows if they got to school on time. They hate school and are rude to the nuns. Annie admits that it must be hard for them. It's a Catholic school. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Where, where, uh, where all the classes are taught in French. But of course her friends, or excuse me, her kids don't know French. Catholicism comes first for Annie, and she has a great sympathy for nuns, except for the mean ones. She herself wanted to be a nun. She applied to the Daughters of St. Joseph, and after a lengthy interview, she was told to wait a year or two. In time, she was accepted, and taking the name Sister Angelica, she was happy to do for God the very work she had so disliked at home. But then she was assigned a month's kitchen trial under Sister Hildegard, a German sister who took the word trial literally. In her abrupt way, Sister Hildegard asked Annie, Sister Angelica, now to go down to the cellar and bring up a bag of sugar. The cellar stairs were steep and the treads were narrow. It was a descent into the great unknown. Annie, obedient, descended. After a brief search, she located the bags of sugar, chose one, and started back up the stairs. But she was holding the bag awkwardly, and when her foot caught in the hem of her habit, the bag slipped from her arms and she went pitching forward on the stairs. The The noise of her fall was terrific, and she lay there expecting someone to come and help her. She waited only a short time before realizing that nobody cared. She recovered the bag of sugar and clutching it in one hand and her habit in the other made her way up to the kitchen. Oh no, Sister Hildegard said. Not a 10-pound bag. I need a 20-pound bag. I just fell on the stairs. I could have been killed. Then you must be more careful, Sister Hildegard said. 
Annie returned to the cellar and got a 20-pound bag. She climbed the stairs and plopped the bag down in front of Sister Hildegard. There, she said. Sister smiled at her and pointed to the bag's fancy gold label, which read, Select Brown Sugar. Not brown, I need white, she said, adding, One more trip, please. Annie stood looking at the old nun until, for the love of God and the vow of obedience, she took to the stairs once again. In the cellar, she sat down on a case of bon ami to rest for a while and to examine the state of her vocation. Had she really heard the call to God? She knew that life in the convent was meant to be a trial, but she had expected trials of a spiritual nature, tests of faith, but not Sister Hildegard and her 20-pound bags of sugar. It was asking too much. She sat on her bonhomie, despairing. Then, hoisting the bag of white sugar high in her arms, she struggled once more up the stairs to the kitchen. She placed the bag of sugar before Sister Hildegard and waited for some new outrage. She did not have to wait long. I've changed my mind, Sister Hildegard said. But before she could say anything more, Annie fairly shouted at her, Whatever it is, you can go to hell and get it yourself. That evening, in conference with Mother Superior, it was decided that Annie could best serve God in some other vocation. And thus, Sister Angelica was no more. Now, as she finishes her pie and cheese, Annie recognizes that you can go to hell and get it yourself was the moment when she took charge of her life and stepped bravely into womanhood. Annie had lost weight in the convent, and her hair, chopped off to wear beneath a veil, grew out to a fashionable length. With her new surprised expression, she looked young and attractive. So she stumbled from the convent into the arms of Willie Hebert. Herbert, Hebert, whatever. Though she remained in her Irish heart, Annie O'Flaherty Clark, and in the next seven years, she popped out four sturdy children. They were easy births, but four was enough, too many, in fact. So she told Willie that sex was part of their mar- the sex part of their marriage was over. From now on, he would have to grind out his satisfactions elsewhere. She was secretly relieved when he chose to drink for his pleasure because she had not been looking forward to having another woman in their life. <laughs> the kids are now in their early teens, the eldest two, David and Mary, anyway, and they are constantly in trouble. Annie's feet hurt and her heart beats too fast. She thinks she may have a condition. Her troubles are beyond number. Only last week, a cop came to the door with questions about David, who was accused of stealing candy bars from Leduc's grocery. Uh, she put him in his place, telling him a thing or two about false accusations and prejudice against the Irish. But it turned out that he, too, was Irish, Officer Murphy. She wonders now if she, was ple- she is pleasing to God. If so, she'd like some evidence of it. Nothing big like saints had, just a little something to keep her going. It's not as if she were asking for Lourdes. <laughs> she decided to go and see a priest at St. Patrick's, the Irish parish, even though technically she belongs to St. Joan of Arc, mostly French. Annie dresses formally for her visit to the priest. She struggles into her girdle and her dark blue dress and then checks the mirror. She's in her 40s, but she looks 60, and she knows it. God does not care, and nobody else matters, so why should she fuss? She always uses face powder, and sometimes she remembers to put on lipstick, but she doesn't go in for makeup. She wears her hair short, brushed straight back, and that's fine for her. She's ready to go. She knows how rectories work. You don't just knock at the door and get to see someone, but she gives it a try anyway. 
She tells the housekeeper that she's, she's got to see a priest. It's urgent, and she'll wait until father is free. Any father, no matter how long. Annie is taking charge of her life and bringing her troubles to God, or at least to the local priest who stands in for him. She waits a long 20 minutes until finally Father O'Malley enters by a side door, like a sneak. He is a young priest, tall, with reddish hair and thick glasses. They're so thick that she wonders how he can see out of them. He smiles officially and says, sit down, even though she's already sitting. He goes to the desk and assumes a listening pose. Annie plunges ahead. She is at the end of her rope, she says. It's her kids. They're into everything and there's no controlling them. The oldest steals from Leduc's. Imagine. She herself is a daily communicant and says the rosary constantly for the Pope's intentions, but nothing seems to help. Four children, and they're all wild. They use terrible language. They pay no attention to the sisters at the school, Sacre Croix. They're French, the sisters. Annie takes out a handkerchief, Irish lace. She is brought for the occasion. Her husband drinks. She has this pain, terrible, in her heart. It's all too much. Why has God given her this cross to bear? She dabs at her eyes with a handkerchief and takes a deep breath. I know, I know. His will be done, she murmurs. Father O'Malley hears, his will be done, and dives right in. She is a good woman, he says, a responsible mother, and and children can be a trial, but marriage and family are meant to be a trial. God intends that. He has ordained marriage for a reason, and he has blessed it with children. Hers don't sound any wilder than most kids that age. She should remember that God has a sense of humor. God likes to see us rejoice occasionally. Father squints to get her in focus. She is very conscientious, he says. Perhaps even over-conscientious. Pray for patience and pray for joy. Annie interrupts to ask if he will have a private talk with David, the thief. David doesn't listen to her, but she knows he would listen to a priest. She could bring him in any time. Father O'Malley does not seem to hear her. Remember, he says, that God never gives us a heavier cross than we can bear. Pushing back from the desk, Father O'Malley says he will pray for her, and meanwhile he manages to get her to the door. Annie turns to say one last thing about his troubles, her troubles, but he's been too quick for her, and she finds herself outside, saying goodbye. I hope our talk has been a help, Father O'Malley says, and lifts his hand in a sort of blessing before he closes the door. Annie stands for a moment on the front steps of the rectory. What just happened? Was she given the bums rush? Is O'Malley one of those priests who don't understand real life? And what was that about God having a sense of humor? If she believed that, she'd give up on religion tomorrow. (laughs) She goes next door to the church to pay for a visit and say the rosary, even though she's not in the mood. The church is empty at this time of day, the way Annie likes it, because it shows that she's doing something extra. She sits back a little so that her behind is braced against the pew. Father O'Malley said that she was a good mother, but maybe too conscientious. He could have gone into more detail on that. She is still hoping for some kind of sign. She has always wondered about divine signs and how they come to you. The stigmata, for instance, or levitation. If you levitate, are you aware of being in the air? How high do you go exactly? Does it hurt when you land? 
She's had trouble with her knees ever since the convent. St. Teresa of Avila levitated all the time, but that was the way in the olden days, and let's face it, nobody gets signs like that anymore. She tries for a comfortable position, but the pew is as hard as stone and her girdle is killing her. It would be nice right now to go to a movie theater, one with those new plush seats, but she continues to sit in the pew until she finishes her rosary. Um, so I'll give a quick summary as you guys flip to the, it's kind of the last scene that we're going we're gonna to wrap up with right now. And um, in the meantime, so Annie goes home after this experience with the priest. She makes dinner for her family and they just exhaust her. Her kids are running around cussing in French and her husband comes home uh, drunk. And so she's feeling holier than her family and so disgu- and disgusted by their behavior. So she goes to her sister's house to spend the night. Her sister's name is Millie, and Millie is pregnant. Um, And Annie relays all of her troubles to her sister, and then ultimately decides to sort of leave everything behind and go to Florida for a rest. Um, In Florida, she picks up a job as a cleaning lady at a hotel, and then is shortly thereafter accused of stealing a guest's necklace. So there's some irony in there, um, given that she really judged her son for being accused of of thievery. And then, kind of feeling like the Florida stint is over, she comes back to her home um, where she finds out that her sister, Millie, had had a miscarriage while she was away. Um, Annie is really terrible at consoling her, um, as you might imagine, um, and finds that her family has sort of um, survived without her. They've, the kids have been pulled out of um, private school. They go to public school. They're doing just fine. And so she feels like everybody's abandoned her. And she goes back to church um, in this last scene, um, which I'll be happy to. Would you, would you like to finish it? or? Um, yeah, you're, yeah, you guys are so, this is going to be such a dynamic recording with everybody's voices. Um, you're so great. So, yeah, if you wouldn't mind. Annie kneels determined before the statue of the Blessed Virgin and tries to pray. Everything in her life is terrible. She herself is terrible, a woman overwhelmed by troubles that keep her from being a good person. She finds she cannot pray. She cannot even think. Her mind is a beehive of doubts and accusations. Less than an hour ago, she knocked on the rectory door and Father O'Malley himself answered. He was abrupt, even hostile, and he seemed to think that she was wrong for having gone to Florida for a rest. Regarding the dictates of her note, he said, he had checked her house from time to time and found everything in good order. Willie had transferred the children to public school where they were doing well. David seemed to have taken over the cooking. The girls made the beds and cleaned the house, and Eddie was learning French with the help of a nun from Sacré-Cœur. Father O'Malley hoped that Annie had had a good rest in Florida, he added, his tone sarcastic. So everyone has turned on her. She is lost, and she knows it. If only she could reclaim that moment of silence when she almost saw where it was that she stood in the eyes of God. Did she almost see that or did she deceive herself? She closes her eyes and immediately she hears herself thinking. And surely she is now her own miracle. I don't care anymore. I don't care about how much I matter or how much you matter. I don't need to know anything. I just give up. I give in. I want nothing. I surrender. And with that, she falls asleep. Kneeling upright at the altar rail before the statue of the Virgin Mary, Annie sleeps a good, unfeeling sleep. She knows nothing. She wants nothing. Now, slowly, gently, she rises in the air, kneeling upright as she ascends to a height of exactly three feet, two inches, still sleeping soundly, aware only that she has surrendered, whatever that means. She knows nothing of what is happening to her. 
Father O'Malley comes from the sacristy, genuflects before the altar, and stops to stare with a single good eye, blurry as it is, and what looks to be a woman levitating. He stares harder and sees that she is that tiresome Annie Clark, and without doubt she's kneeling on the empty air. He blesses himself, genuflects again, and goes back into the sacristy. Annie eventually descends from the air, sleeping still. When she wakes, she has no knowledge of what has happened. She's embarrassed at having fallen asleep in church, and her knees hurt from kneeling so long, but she is strangely rested and refreshed. In the sacristy, Father O'Malley ponders, to what end would God suspend his law of gravity this way? For whose benefit and why? Annie Clark seems an unlikely candidate for his special attention as is he himself, half blind and half useless. Still, he is pleased to have been chosen, chosen as a witness to the levitation of this annoying woman. Perhaps the age of miracles has returned, or more likely, God is simply in one of his antic moods. It is not useful to examine this kind of thing too closely, he knows. Still, you have to wonder. Thank you guys all for participating in the reading. Um, I hope you enjoyed that story. Um, yeah, so I want to sort of run back through it with just some of my own little annotations and what I, what I got out of this. Um, in the very first paragraph, there's a, we sort of get the little tip off of what kind of person Annie is when um, the narrator says, everywhere women are taking charge of their lives, but Annie is Catholic, so she has to go slow. <laughs> um, and so Annie's, to, to my mind, this means this reads like Annie is sort of relying on these different distinctions. She's a newly empowered woman, but she's also a Catholic, and she has these different categories to distinguish herself as holy. Um, but the problem that she sort of faces time and again throughout the story is that her own self-righteousness sort of follows her no matter which category she's um, finding herself in and using to prop up her identity. Um, later, I think it's pretty interesting that um, Lara just writes that she wanted to be a nun. He doesn't really give any motivation there. I think there's a little of himself in that, um, as, as he wanted to be a priest. At one point in one of these interviews that I looked into, he commented that he wanted to be a priest because he felt that he could, and that was kind of the only reason. Um, and I think this little parable with Sister Hildegard establishes that, um, that sort of um, maybe maybe she couldn't she couldn't even cut it as a as a nun like maybe she thinks that this is something she's able to do but um, it's actually proven that she's she's unable to do it and so like physically incapable of meeting Sister Hildegard's demands and that name Hildegard literally means battle guard and so at this point she's in the convent and is sort of occupying the realm of of what we would call the law or this like ever shifting standard which is often proves impossible um, to, to meet in everyday life. Um, meanwhile, she's adopted this name, Sister Angelica, and so she's trying to sort of embody the angelic realm, and it really only lasts you know, a, very, a very short time until it says she's, she's extinguished. Um, Sister Angelica is no more. Um, and then there's that part where it says, um, as she's going down into the cellar for this bag of sugar, it's a descent into the great unknown. And I think, so this is a free and direct narration to where it is a third person narrator, but it's taking on the voice of Annie Clark. And I think you get the sense that she's maybe being a little bit dramatic there. Um, but I think it's also an enlightening sentence because th this is sort of Annie's conflict throughout the story. This, it's sort of Annie versus the unknown. 
um, woman versus mystery throughout the entire thing, and Annie wants to know. She wants to be sure of what's about to happen. Um, meanwhile, there's the interesting detail of when she's down in the cellar and she's tired, she's feeling sort of confused about her calling. She rests on a, on a case of bonhomie, which in French means good friend. Um, I mean, I think I have to assume that's an intentional little detail, and I think I started to think about it really. And um, Bonami is also this um, cleaning product that's known for um, for not using harsh chemicals, and so she's sort of resting on this thing in the in the dark, dank cellar, and sort of comes to her senses um, there that maybe she's she's not cut out for this. Um, so I thought that was quite beautiful. For me, the thesis of the story comes later on where it says, she wonders now if she's pleasing to God. If so, she'd like some evidence of it. Nothing big like the saints had, just a little something to keep her going. Um, yeah, and I, I find this claim that she just needs a little something like suspect, given what we know of her character. I feel like she, um, yeah, she may be given these little things. She does have a, a family and kids who, um, she sort of decided that she's better than. Um, and so it's questionable of like whether or not any level of affirmation from God or from people would really be enough for her. Um, uh, one other little detail that I wanted to kind of go into is when Father O'Malley, the priest, enters by the side door like a sneak. Um, I think that's a really clever, clever image for... I mean, he is not God, but he's, he is the priest standing in for God. It's exactly what it says. And, um, and stick glasses. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And so it's sort of this indirect mode of, of action from, from the, the sort of divine representation in the story. Um, and then there's also this judgment. Again, I think we have the voice of Annie speaking through the narrator, where she says he's like a sneak. Like, it's just not, um, she's, she's just suspicious. He's not good enough for her. Um, so those are sort of some of my beginning thoughts and I, I, I want to get um, if you guys have any um, yeah thoughts or questions but first I want to sort of read pieces of a little interview that John Leroy gave about this story and some of his thoughts um, so I'll just read this was from yeah the New Yorker magazine interview um, he says like most people Annie wants to be good and to do good. And despite her intolerance and her judgmental nature, there are moments when she acknowledges, privately and secretly, how badly she has failed. This combination of glutinous piety and spiritual blindness is common enough. I think I, I feel that way a lot of times, and I see that in other people who I know, know well. But, but in Annie, there's, there's this added phenomenon where she demands God's approval. And alas, John LaRue says, we know how God feels about that. I recall God to Job. God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who settled its dimensions? Surely you should know. Loris continues, is there a touch of divine sarcasm here? In any case, Annie, in her small way, is as impertinent as Job. She wants to know. And I think the funny thing is that Annie is not in the same state as Job, and neither am I. Um, Job you know, had <laughs> just a terrible experience. And, but I, I really relate to her exaggerated state of self-importance. Self um, in that same interview, Leroux continues. Um, he's, he's trying to give some explanation of why 
he gave the exact measurement of how high Annie floated off the ground when she was levitating. Um, Annie Clark wants to measure God's favors. She wants precision, as if height mattered, or as if divine grace were a thing to be commandeered. She wants to know the details of an ordinary levitation, because a two-inch difference might diminish or increase her perceived degree of holiness. Above all, she does not want to be struck with a lesser levitation. And she gets what she wants up to a point. Annie levitates in a church, but is asleep at the time. So the only witness to this wonder is Father O'Malley, who is blind in one eye and dim in the other. Um, he's not even surprised. He knows well that this grace is given freely. It is not some kind of celestial merit, merit badge. And in any case, he has found it unwise to look too closely into God's sense of humor. He's simply grateful to have participated in the event. Grace, we are told, cannot be earned. It is given with no strings attached. Grace is, I suppose, the ultimate mystery in God's dealings with men and women. Annie's determination to strong-arm God, to elicit verifiable evidence of her sanctity, not only makes a mockery of grace, it also makes genuine spirituality impossible for her. So I think this is sort of Leroux's maybe like take on the whole religion thing, having been a priest and then um, retreating from that. Um, he's not mocking spirituality or piety. He's just illustrating these ways by which genuine spirituality, we make that impossible for ourselves with our quest for self-righteousness and s choosing to live in these um, kind of, yeah, realms of comparison and measurement. Um, at some point when Annie's talking about the stigmata, which is when you, like, it's this phenomenon of praying so fervently that you start to sweat blood. Um, it's sort of like a marker of, of holiness in the history of, I think, the, the saints in the Catholic Church. Um, her sister, Millie, when she's talking to her sister, Millie says, can you please talk about something real? And I don't think Millie is suggesting that the miraculous is fake necessarily. Um, it's instead just that these little signs, the stigmata, levitation, these things that Annie's hoping for as a sort of divine yeah, merit badge, they don't have any bearing on the present realities of life, the actual difficulties. Um, I think it's important to note that Jesus did signs and miracles, but it wasn't the most important thing he did. Um, one thing that some Christians I've heard when I've sort of looked into this question of signs and wonders, like one theory that people have is that maybe like the first century, like these miracles did happen, um, but it was sort of a special time, like ordained by God where the Son of Man was present and so miracles couldn't help but happen. Um, and what this story kind of makes me think is like, maybe we also live in a special time, but also like we spend one, one third of our lives asleep on average. And so like there's really some degree to which we don't have like a perfect awareness or consciousness of our surroundings. And so, um, and so the, yeah, that grace may be coming in by the side door like a sneak. Um, one, one last thing that I want to note is that there's a rule in creative writing which says that in a short story, a character has to want something. And the story is about whether or not the character gets that thing. In the interview, Lara has said that Annie wants assurance. Assurance. By the end, maybe she isn't given it um, because she's asleep. <laughs> but maybe the reader or the half-blind priest is. This is a miracle that could only be witnessed through the blindness of the priest, he kind of considers himself half blind, half useless. Um, because faith, according to Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. 
Um, and I just came across this, this entry from the Mockingbird devotional that Dave Zoll actually wrote um, about this verse, and I really I love what he has to say. Um, he says, The assurance of Hebrews goes beyond our circumstances, intentions, and abilities. It is based instead on something outside of us, something objective, something sure. The unassailable love of God revealed in the risen Christ, where the unseen became seen once for all and now and forever. Um, so I think that's, that's the gist of the story. Um, I, yeah, I could continue, but I kind of want to open up the floor and see if you guys have any thoughts or comments, um, things that you noticed or observed in the story or felt um, moved by. Nope, no pressure. <laughs> I thought that was interesting right at the first that she she has to go down. Mm. Into the cellar. Instead of she, and she keeps wanting to actively rise up, but it's in her passivity that she meets the comfort of the bonhomie, you know, of, of her helplessness. And one, one time I was in a Sunday school class and a guy got up and said he'd been teaching for year a year and we knew he hated it every Sunday morning. Like he just doesn't want to prepare. He couldn't drink as much beer on some Saturday night. And he was just and he like said, guys, I gotta tell you, I'm quitting today. And I just I knew it would have been inappropriate, but I just wanted to clap for him because I felt that he was free in that moment because he was no longer he's no longer going to live under the obligation of something he was joyless about anyway. Yeah. And it felt to me like an expression of freedom, even though it looked to all of us like, oh, this guy's not strong enough to keep this thing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think about the, that as related to the title, which is The Rise and Rise of Annie Clark. Like, yeah. So from some perspective, like, yeah, physically she went down into that cellar. She sort of was abandoned by all of her loved ones. But also, like, on another plane, she's, like, levitating and, like... Well, she doesn't need to be lifted up until she goes completely passive. Yeah, totally. Um. Yeah, I was in the same way. Like, I was, um, on the last page, full page, it says, um, you know, she surrenders. That's, like, the last thing that happens before she, and using that word reminds me so much of, like, you know, 12 steppers and, you know, that Mm -hmm. surrender idea and, and then her discontentment, like, throughout the rest of the story. It made me, um, it made me look, like, that word made me look back at the rest of it in a different light. Mm-hmm. And just, I do think that's, like, it's, he says that she doesn't get assurance, and she doesn't, but she gets, like, resolution, I think, mm-hmm. through that. Like, it, like I, to me, it, it felt really peaceful, that mm-hmm. passage, mm-hmm. where she finally says she doesn't care anymore. Yeah. She doesn't need to know how much she matters and stuff. That's actually something new I've thought of. Just, yeah, you just made me, like... It is like she really does get some sort of resolution because she's at some, she's finally giving up control, which is driving her crazy throughout the whole story. All of these little things that she's trying to micromanage, the size of the piece of cheese, um, and she just depresses herself by trying to get that piece of cheese. And um, yeah, so getting to that point, actually, regardless of whether or not she knows about the miracle, is really quite a resolution in itself. Yeah. I wonder if that's a, why he, what he came to in his own life with his, like, I feel like maybe that's why he went into the priesthood was to get that exactness, you know, mm-hmm. but um, didn't get it mm-hmm. and ended up feeling like that's okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I find the, the priest to be fascinating in his really, like, overt rudeness to her. 
that also in the story ends up reading as actually effective pastoral care. Mm -hmm. He literally pushes her out the door yeah. and leads her <laughs> leads her wondering, you know, what, what good was that at all? And that, you know, triggers her whatever her I guess <laughs> journey into a place that leaves her ready to give up. Mm -hmm. um, and then to see him sort of dispensing this wisdom about her experience while literally thinking to himself, man, I you know, really don't like her very much. You know? <laughs> He's, he calls her tiresome at the moment that she's being lifted up by God into the air in a miraculous way. And I think that's just a really fascinating sort of, he is demystified and made to be very human and very, like, he's not some sort of perfect sage that's, you know, got nothing but balming words of wisdom to dispense. He's kind of mean. <laughs> and he's broken. He barely can see what's happening. Yeah. And yet, he perfectly understands it. Yeah, I think that's a great read of him. I've I've sort of spent some time like wondering about this priest because yeah, he does sort of dispense these platitudes that are really unhelpful, and I wonder if it's like to some extent he's just sort of diagnosed her as this like woman who's sort of beyond help at the point where she sort of comes to him and she's still trying to like micromanage and control and elicit particular responses from him. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think on the one hand, it probably is just that he's this complete character who has his own flaws. But then on the other hand, I wonder if he's just sort of like, he's waiting for, for that point where she actually comes and needs help. Um, yeah, go ahead. Actually, when you were just talking, I started thinking about uh, Jesus in Mark's Gospel, who at points seems to be rude and exasperated with people. Uh, and if you read, you know, if you read some of the variants too, he actually gets really angry, uh, but still heals. And so when you were just talking, it just opened up the uh, standing in for God aspect of this priest. And it kind of seems to me like the levitation was almost for him, because like she has given up, and so that is her like resolution, like you're talking about, like resolutions and then after she's given up she falls asleep and levitates and doesn't remember it and then but he's the witness to it and then at the end he's like maybe this is the time of miracles it's not useful to examine this kind of thing still you have to wonder and i just feel like something changed in him um yeah in his character through witnessing that but uh, like i feel like that moment was almost for him and one other thing, just from her perspective, like she wakes up and is embarrassed. It's like this thing that she like can't believe she like fell asleep while she was praying to the Blessed Virgin, um, and I think that's like pretty classic. Feels like a good example of God um, sanctifying a person and them having no like because she's basically giving up because she believes that everyone has turned on her, which is not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> arguably not true, and so then she has this false idea, and so it just kind of drives her to say, like, uh, that's the end of my road, and then yeah. she pulls it. Mm. Well, any final comments or questions? Um, I feel like um, the lady from the beginning knows that she's going to have that experience. Mm. Um, unconsciously, I think that we pursue our dreams because we know that it's our right and that it's in us and that we 
are born to experience that. Mm. Um, but um, maybe when we compare ourselves to others, you know, others have other dreams different from us, so we start wondering whether we can actually, you know, make it or not. And um, I really like the priest because he's, I would say, the only one that is respectful. He's like, yeah, maybe the wrong one, I'm going to do this. Mm. Um, and in a way, um, that's showing respect for her. Mm. Yeah, he's sort of not trying to control her path. Yeah, he's letting letting this kind of rise and this rise or fall, like whatever it is, he's letting it happen without intervening or controlling. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. It's like really a fun little session, and um, I hope you guys are having fun at the conference. And hope to talk to more of you later. No, thanks. Thank you.